If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this September 3rd, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show, which is one of the few places where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. And after a week off, this is a big week for the podcast. We've got three full hours of tremendous content for you, stuff you'll not hear anywhere else. I think you're going to find very compelling. Two tremendous interviews. Hour number two, we speak with the guy who runs Glenn Beck's media organization, Jonathan Schreiber, and he speaks to us for over an hour about the specifics of what happened there this week with massive cutbacks at the Blaze, as well as the state of the conservative media in general. You will not want to miss that. And then in hour number three, in honor of this Labor Day weekend being the start of football season, we speak with NFL legend Franco Harris about a myriad of topics including the so-called Penn State scandal, the state of the game of football, the concussion issue, Colin Kaepernick, his life. Very interesting stuff. That's in hour number three. So make sure you listen to both, not just hour number one, but also hour number two and hour number three with two really, really good interviews. Before we get to the news of the the week, actually the last couple of weeks since we took the week off, uh, it was a big couple of weeks for the Ziegler family. Part of the reason why we were off last week was because we took a vacation to San Diego, which is my daughter's favorite place in the world, where I don't think it ever got above uh, 70 degrees, uh, thanks to the uh, global warming that we're experiencing. But it was it was still nice, and uh, Grace had a real good time. But uh, it was we we decided to do that vacation just before she started school for the first time. She began kindergarten this past week, and that obviously is a a big moment, uh, particularly big when you're the first child, as Grace is. You probably remember my my five-year-old child, Grace. I am the leader! Do as I say! That's her Donald Trump impression. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that so much in our culture has been diluted. Like, even Labor Day weekend has been diluted. It used to be at least when I was growing up, Labor Day weekend was the official end of summer. 
school rarely ever started until after Labor Day, and the summer, you know, it was basically sacred at least mid-June till the beginning of September. Now, school starts all sorts of different times. And by the way, it's not just to me that it starts before Labor Day. It's that it starts at different points for people even within the same section of the country. I mean, here in Southern California, you know, my, my wife's family is all, is all teachers. And so I'm, I'm more in tune with this. There are schools that start basically from the beginning of August to the beginning of to, to September. There's still a few that hold out to start school this upcoming week. But there's a literally a month period of time between the start or the beginning of school starting and the end of school starting. Now, this has an impact in a couple different ways. One, it dissipates the communal experience of, okay, it's time to go back to school. It also, by the way, and I, I don't have numbers to back this up, but there has to have been a massive sea change, for instance, in summer camps across the country. Because now, in this day and age, it's basically only July that's sacred. And one month is not enough time to to do summer camp, especially when a lot of people take their own vacations. So there's a whole bunch of things that have changed subtly simply because we now have a schedule change. And for some reason, schools feel like they need to start school before Labor Day weekend. The other thing that kind of dissipates things is, at least in my day and age, it wasn't expected or almost mandatory to go to school before kindergarten. I never, I don't think I ever went to preschool. I don't think I did. I have no recollection or knowledge if I did. Of course, that was in the dark ages. But my, my daughter has... In her mind, she's already been going to school for two years. Now, she's going to a different school now, which is a big deal. Different kids, different teachers, what have you. And and when you think about the magnitude of this, I mean, barring some really unforeseen catastrophe, she's going to be going to the same school for nine years of her life. She will never go to anything. I doubt she'll ever go to a job, uh, if there even are jobs when she gets to be older that white people are allowed to have. But I digress. Uh, as a girl, she might have a chance. Uh, but the point here is she's off on a nine-year journey. This school is from kindergarten through eighth grade. But in her mind, it's not as big of a deal because she's already been to preschool for a couple years. At least that's what we thought until it actually happened. And when it happened and the way they did this, was they had, you know, all the parents bring the kids into the classroom and say hi to the teacher and get ready and put all their, my gosh, the number of things that you bring to kindergarten class now with you is just ridiculous. But you kind of get situated. And then they had, they lined up all the kids outside and and basically escorted them away from the parents where the parents were still in the classroom so that they could go watch a movie or something. But it was clear to the kids that this was the moment. This was the goodbye. All right. See you later. Even though <laughs> the first day was a half day. and They're all going to be gone for like two and a half hours, maybe three at the most. But wow. Um, Grace was fine up until that. And she just started to ball. I mean, just ball. It was heartbreaking to see. Of course, she didn't care at all about 
leaving daddy. It was about all about mom, which I understand. I get that's, that's part of being a dad. Uh, but she was very, very upset about uh, leaving mom. But on the bright side, she seemed to have had a good first week. She seems to, to like her new school. And uh, I'm sure she'll be running the school by by the end of next week, based upon, you know, if you've, you've listened to this this podcast and this show at all, you, you know, Grace, while she can sometimes be shy, is not usually shy. I mean, she's, she's the one that was uh, willing and able to tell you exactly why the old uh, syndicated radio show had to be stopped. It's costing money. Right. <laughs> Boy, she sounds a lot different there, doesn't she? Then I am the leader. Do as I say. Boy, it's amazing how fast they grew up. Everyone says that, and it's so very true. If we did not have our miracle baby, Diana, my wife would be a complete mess, a total puddle. She'd be getting more sleep, maybe, but she would she would have been way, way more upset than Grace going off to kindergarten. But because she, you know, we have the mulligan, our our baby Diana, we get to do it all over again. Uh, that at least gives her some hope for the future. So we have that going for us, well, which is nice. All right. Uh, obviously, the big story uh, over the last couple of weeks has been uh, Hurricane Harvey and the impact on mostly uh, Texas. Uh, the devastation in Houston due to the unprecedented flooding. And these situations are always very difficult to evaluate when they're this enormous. It feels like the country is handling this about as well as it could possibly be done. It feels like Texas is handling this about as well as could possibly be done. Obviously, there's never going to be a seamless response. There's been some controversies. Some people are not happy with the, the mayor of Houston who, does have some similarities to the to the mayor of New Orleans during Katrina. I do wonder cuz I'm always very suspicious of how narratives take hold whenever a big story happens. The media wants there to be a good narrative that they can you know, they can drive the storyline. And I do wonder whether or not this happening mostly in Texas and people's perceptions of Texas, you know, the frontier and cowboys and tough guys. I wonder if that has molded our perception of how things have been handled. There have been absolute acts of heroism. By the way, one of them was, I love the, one of my favorite moments in this whole deal was the, the Bayou Navy, the, the people from the, the New Orleans area bringing in their boats to try to help with the, the flooding victims. That was pretty awesome. And that wasn't necessarily a Texas thing. But I do, I do wonder whether or not we perceive this whole set of circumstances a little bit differently because of our perceptions of Texas. That's human. It's understandable. And again, it's impossible to know. Obviously, this is a horrendous event that Houston will be recovering from for a very, very long time. Then there becomes the issue of funding. Now, the charity response has been amazing. America, once again, indicating how and why it is the most generous nation in the history of the world. And I'm all for that. I'm a little bit, as a, as a libertarian conservative, I'm a little bit uh, more hesitant when it comes to government assistance. Now, the government absolutely has the responsibility for safety, for transportation, for infrastructure, you know, public infrastructure, that kind of thing. I get all that. But whenever these kind of things happen, invariably, it's almost impossible to be able to separate 
okay, what's a, a public situation from a private? And there's a part of me that feels like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. I get that this is a horrible set of circumstances, and people, if they want to, should should give to charity. And charity should take care of this kind of a situ- situation. But the reality is these people all chose to live right in Hurricane Alley. And this is not a, while it's an unprecedented storm, it's not a shock. Now, if you if you talk to the climate change people, somehow this was a total stunner that Houston, Texas, and Texas would be hit by a massive hurricane. Um, yeah, like only every year. I mean, almost every year, in, in fact, in, in, the, in the years in which there are not hurricanes that hit Texas, that's a great year. Uh, interestingly, you know, if you remember, Texas was in drought. I'm always, I always go back to drought on this issue. Texas was in drought a few years ago. You know why? Because they hadn't had any good hurricanes in a while. Same thing happens with Florida, by the way. The only reason Florida ever goes into drought is a lack of hurricanes. That's where they get an enormous percentage of their yearly rainfall. Is it's expected that they're going to hit get hit by one or two hurricanes? Now you hope that it's only a one or category one or category two, and it moves off fast, and the damage is limited. That's you know if you get lucky, but invariably you're going to have a situation where. You get unlucky. And obviously that's what happened with with Houston. Although interestingly, this was similar to Katrina. People forget that the original response, the original reaction when Katrina hit was one of relief. Go back and check it yourself. The original headlines was that New Orleans had basically dodged a massive bullet because at the very last moment Katrina kind of weakened and wobbled and it wasn't the initial damage wasn't as bad as was feared. Well, similarly, Harvey hit in a rather unpopulated area, but it was the rainfall that came afterwards that was obviously so incredibly uh, devastating and unprecedented. Now, as far as those who have tried to claim that this is evidence of climate change, and wow, the Washington Post has been the worst on this. I, I've counted at least four articles in the Washington Post since Harvey hit trying to make the case that Harvey is evidence of climate change. And this drives me crazy. Not because it necessarily isn't. I mean, I'm open to that. Okay, yeah, this was an unprecedented event. Heat may have had something to do with it. Gulf of Mexico was warmer than normal, apparently, and that might have contributed to the to the amount of rain that fell on Houston. I get it. I'm open to that. What I don't get is the dramatic inconsistency of the logic or lack thereof. Because ever since Katrina, we went through this exact same thing in Katrina. Oh, my gosh, this is a turning point for climate change. Back then, they called it global warming. Remember? Back then, it was global warming. Oh, if you don't understand it by now, you're never going to get it. You got your head in the sand. Obviously, the world is changing. We're all going to die because of climate change. This is going to happen all the time now. And nothing happened for many years. They kept predicting, oh, we're going to get more hurricanes of greater strength. And we kept getting lucky year after year with no major hurricanes. Now, there was Sandy in 2012, but you got to remember, Sandy, and I, I, 
I saw some headlines this this uh, week trying to make a thread between Katrina, Sandy, and Harvey, and it's ridiculous. One reason is because Sandy happened in late October on the Northeast Corridor, and the major, almost entire reason why there was so much damage from Sandy is the timing of the tides. If it happened six hours later, it's a non-event almost. So that you cannot put that to, to climate change, global warming, but the media loves a narrative. That's the way the media thinks. Oh, we got, we got three data points. We got a narrative. Run with it, even though it's over 12 years' time, and we were told, oh, there's going to be so many hurricanes. So many tornadoes. By the way, tornadic, tornadic activity is way down as well. I have no idea why. None. But let's be consistent. If you're telling me there's going to be more storm activity, there's no evidence of that. None. And, of course, the other inconsistency is we kept getting told that weather is not climate. That's one of the climate change mantras. Oh, no, no. You, you're not allowed to reference the fact that California is no longer in drought, even though two years ago you told us it was a perpetual drought that will never end, that the world is going to change forever. And oh, by the way, now, two years later, there's no drought. You're not even allowed to mention that, when in my mind, that should have discredited an enormous amount of the whole climate change hysteria. But you're not even allowed to mention that because that's weather. Frankly, no, that wasn't weather. We we got hit in California this winter with a series of storms that were unexpected. It was a year when they were not supposed to happen over an extended two or two and a half month period of time. That's not weather. That's more climate. You know, let me tell you what weather is. Weather is one massive storm hitting in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's weather. So. All I ever really, I really only ask two things of the climate change people. Give me a prediction that turns out to be true and be remotely consistent. And I've yet to see any indication of either. And Harvey certainly isn't it. Now, obviously, there's a lot of scrutiny of how Donald Trump reacted to Harvey. Gee, I, I wonder whether or not people's reactions to how Trump has handled Harvey have anything to do with how they already felt about Trump to begin with. (laughs) I would say like at a 99.9% clip, if you like Trump, you think he did awesome. If you don't like Trump, you think he made a lot of tone death statements and did a lot of things that deserved criticism. Uh, Frankly, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure how relevant he really is in this situation. You know, there were some th- certain things I I would not have done. I mean, he, wishing people luck, <laughs> good luck before the storm hit. And yesterday, I think he told journalists have a good time while while they're while they're uh, you know hanging out with the the evacuees and the refugees. And he put out a video yesterday, which he tweeted to uh, Lee Greenwood's "God Bless the USA" of Pictures of him and Melania with the hurricane survivors. But it was almost all about him. It was almost all about him. So, I mean, 
that's the kind of stuff that, again, if you don't like Trump, you go, okay, really? From the President of the United States? But I don't think he's done anything majorly wrong or anything all that tremendously good. I am interested in the fact, and this is so Trumpy and such an indication of how desensitized we are to the insanity that is Donald Trump. But, you know, a few days ago, his press secretary said that Donald Trump, to great fanfare, is going to donate a million dollars of his own money to hurricane relief. Now, I immediately looked at, heard about that and I go, bullcrap. <laughs> He's not going to give him a million dollars of his personal money. Now, he might, and this is very, very different, he might have his foundation give a million dollars. But see, that's not his money. That's money other people have given. So he might give a million dollars of other people's money to make himself look good because his followers, his cult followers, are too dumb to understand the difference. Well, sure enough, yesterday, when asked for a clarification, uh, it was very obvious that the plan is not for the president to give his own personal money to a million dollars, to the tune of a million dollars. But the, the, there's confusion. We're not sure. We're not sure if it's his personal money or his foundation. You know what that means? At best, it's going to be his foundation. At worst, a month from now, we're still going to be going, um, remember that million-dollar donation thing? What, whatever happened with that? Because that's the way Trump works. Trump lives every day like it's his last. And if you can get a good headline on that day, oh, Trump gave a million dollars and his fans on Twitter you know, have their orgasm. Oh, how awesome he is. The fact that he never actually gave the million dollars is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Now, the other thing that, um, and but this is similar. This, this, is, this is so in his M.O. In fact, we just learned this weekend he did an incredibly similar thing when he tweeted long ago, it seems, although it was only a few months ago, he tweeted that he had just learned, remember, very dramatically tweeted, I've just learned that Barack Obama, our former president, wiretapped me at Trump Tower during the campaign. That's what he said. Called Obama a bad, sick person for doing it. Yes, he put wiretapping in quotes, and yes, it's Twitter, but it's clear what he was meaning. Well, the Department of Justice, as quietly as possible, uh, released a report over the weekend, Labor Day weekend. Um, Yeah, oh, by the way, um, yeah. Uh, that whole uh, wiretapping thing, yeah, that 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 was that was that was bullshit, complete bullshit. Yeah, yeah. When the president tweeted about that, uh, yeah, that uh, that was that was not true. And there's almost no repercussion for that. Not one of his cult members said, "Gee, I feel duped," because that was a whole big deal. Remember, that was all oh, outrage. And you know, Mark Levin of all people, who I used to respect. Went went off the deep end trying to substantiate this claim. Complete total fraud. Untrue. No evidence of it. No logic behind it either. It's one thing not to have evidence, but it doesn't even make sense on its face. It was just a lie. It was a lie used at the time to distract people, and it was successful because it distracted people. Because we because he's the president, we have to we can't presume he's. Inherently lying, even though by now we should. He's given some benefit of the doubt, and by the time there's proof that he's lying, no one cares anymore. So the liar wins. The liar gets his headline, he gets his distraction, he rallies his base, 
He foments hatred against Obama. And no one will change their mind once it turns out he lied. In fact, I guarantee you the Trump cult, to the extent that they're even aware of this lie, is they probably think the Department of Justice is in on the conspiracy. Or that this is part of the deep state out to get Donald Trump. It's all bullcrap. He's a liar. He's a pathological liar who only cares about himself. The most underrated story of the past couple of weeks, partially because of Hurricane Harvey, is a revelation about the whole Trump-Russia situation. And this also is another classic example of how desensitized we are. Can you imagine any other, even unsuccessful, presidential candidate, but a successful presidential candidate, a president of the United States, turning out that during the campaign, during the heart of the campaign, that they were involved in heavy, legitimate negotiations with a foreign adversarial power to build a massive building in their capital. And they lied about it. Can you imagine any other situation where we learn that? With Trump, it's like, uh, yeah, boy, that's weird. Turn on the football. I mean, that, that's basically the reaction. To be clear, what I'm referring to is we now know that Donald Trump, through the key portions of the Republican presidential nominating process, while he was praising Vladimir Putin during Republican debates, was negotiating for the creation of a Trump Tower Moscow in what would have been a massive deal. Eventually, Russia pulled the plug on it. But Trump had signed a letter of intent. This was not just some theoretical deal. This wasn't a one off conversation. This was months and months in the making. Now, if you don't think that that influenced Trump's perspective on Russia and Putin while he was running for president, I don't know what to tell you. That's as obvious as it gets. But maybe more importantly, this goes to what my theory on Trump-Russia has always been. There's two really important elements of this, as I see it. Number one, Trump never thought he was going to win. He never intended to be president of the United States. Unless he's a complete imbecile slash lunatic. And I think he's crazy, but I don't think he's that crazy. He, you, you would never, ever engage in a project of this magnitude in Moscow If you thought, you know what, I shouldn't do this because this is going to be built at the same time I'm president of the United States and that's a problem. No, he never thought that way. One, because he doesn't think ahead. Two, because he never thought he was going to be president. Now, I've had people on Twitter, you know, Colt 45 members, they believe him every time. Colt 45 members tell me, well, John, I thought he was a narcissist. How would a narcissist not realize he was going to win or think he was going to win? Um morons, even the most ridiculous narcissist doesn't think that they're capable of lifting 800 pounds in a bench press, all right? So even a narcissist understands they have some limitations. So look, if if that assumption is wrong, 
then Trump is more insane than even I have ever thought possible. I would prefer to think that he just never thought he would win. That would be the Oxum's razor, semi-logical, not a total lunatic explanation for this. Because if you thought you were going to win and you were full on trying to get a tower in Moscow with your name on it, uh, that's a massive problem. Massive problem on numerous levels. But the second part of this that's important is not just that it shows he never thought he was going to win and this is an accidental presidency. And let's not let's not downplay how important that is. <laughs> when you're an accidental presidency, that has enormous significance because it explains an awful lot about why he's been a failure so far. It also, and I, I've, I've always felt that his strategy, and this is actually to his credit in, a, in some ways, that his strategy during the campaign was consistent with a guy who never thought he would win. See, having followed politics all my life since 1976, invariably, there's always a moment, you might call it the choke moment, that if, if an upstart candidate, whether it's a president or any major office, suddenly starts to think, oh my God, I might actually win, inherently, they get conservative, not politically conservative, strategically conservative. They start to put their foot on the brake. Like, oh, we got to be careful now because now we got something to protect. Trump never did that, ever. Now, I thought at the time, well, maybe, you know, his his threshold of choking is just higher than anyone else's. He's a alleged billionaire and he's so famous and maybe he just doesn't have the choke gene. no. I think it's because he kept thinking, it doesn't matter what I do because eventually they're going to catch up with me. Eventually the Access Hollywood stuff's going to come out or something's going to come out and I'm going to be toast. So I might as well run with this thing as fast as I can run for as long as they let me run. And they never caught him. And he ended up being elected. Largely, I think, not entirely, not primarily, but at least in part because of Russian influence. WikiLeaks and fake news on Facebook. Now, that's the second part of this that's important. My theory has always been, not just that Trump never thought he was going to win, but that his dalliances with Russia, because he never thought he was going to win, were all about business prospects for after the campaign was over. Because he never thought he was going to win, He was building relationships. He was showing Putin. He was basically kissing Putin's ass in the most high-profile possible way he could and building relationships underground so that when he lost, it would be far easier for him to finally score businesses in Russia, which he's been trying to do for many years. And yet during the campaign, I got nothing to do with Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Nothing. It was a lie. And it was a strategic lie. And it was a lie that worked. But we should now at this point, we should presume everything that Trump says that benefits him personally or protects him personally is a lie. Because that's what he's about. He's a pathological liar. So this was a major development in understanding 
the real Trump narrative, and it might be a major development with regard to the investigation by independent counsel Bob Mueller. We don't know that yet, but there has been a lot of speculation that this will be a major focus because it's it's a key to putting all this together, to connecting all the dots. And that's really the, I think, uh, incredibly important for people, you know, a lot of conservatives who, who get their news from Fox News Channel, from Drudge, who think that this Russia thing is all a bunch of bull crap, it's fake news. Of course, whenever Trump says something is fake news, it usually turns out to be dead true. But the reason why they they don't think that Russia the Russia story is relevant or significant or credible is that this story takes a lot of different data points to be connected. And if you're not getting those data points, like if you listen to Sean Hannity or get your news from Drudge or Fox News Channel in general, if you don't have those data points, you can't see the larger picture. And the larger picture is there's something there. What exactly? I don't know. But there's something there. Speaking of which, there was a poll out this week. Only 56% of the American people believe that Donald Trump will finish his first term in office. 56%. That's got to be, has to be, the lowest in history for somebody who's just eight or nine months into their their first term. 56%. Um, I'm probably, even though it's going to sound wussy, I'm probably 50-50 on this. I go back and forth between 55 and 45 in, in either direction, whether or not he'll finish his first term. I do think that resignation is far more likely than removal. I do not believe he'll be removed because the threshold for removal is so incredibly steep uh, when it comes to impeachment, especially in the Senate. But I can see him just getting tired of the whole thing. And, you know, he's burning so much energy in such a short period of time that over time he might just say, you know what, screw it. I'm done with this, and I'll blame the swamp, and I'll blame Republicans, and I'll save face, and I'm just going to get the hell out of here. But I I don't think we're close to that, and I I certainly don't think that we're even to the point yet where that is remotely inevitable. But it's certainly possible. Speaking of um, Trump's frustrations and, and the nature of his personality, this story, I know that fans of Trump won't believe it, but this story I'm about to, to read you is really extraordinary because it, it goes to the idea that Trump really is, as I've often referred to him, a toddler. And it's almost like he's a captive toddler in the White House because his chief of staff, John Kelly, is so desperate to protect him from bad forces. Now, Kelly has done a heck of a job so far of getting rid of the bad apples. And there's only a few more left to go. But Bannon is gone. Apparently he's in a battle with Amarosa now. Which tells you everything you need to know about the Trump presidency. That that General John Kelly has to battle with Amarosa from The Apprentice. Because apparently Amarosa feels it's, it's her job to trigger. That's right. To trigger Trump like he's a child. Like she... Like, she knows how to get him upset. And so her access to Trump has been apparently curtailed by Kelly in an effort for Amorosa not to trigger Trump and get him in a bad mood all day and get him, you know, to go on Twitter and engage in these ridiculous fights. Uh, 
Well, this story, I think, is certainly related. The president reportedly complained to a friend about the um, actually, let me let me let me back up here. The new White House chief of staff, John Kelly, has started to change the way things are run in the West Wing, including the president's reading material. The New York Times reports Trump has complained about the lack of conservative news sources coming across his desk. Trump's phone apparently does not have Internet access and he doesn't use a laptop computer. So he relies on hard copies of articles being delivered to him. So imagine it. So this is so Trump doesn't use a laptop. His phone doesn't have Internet. He's he's like this king in a castle who's cut off from the world except for television, Fox News Channel and whatever his minions put on his desk. Well, Kelly has been trying to make sure that these whack job right wing conspiracy sites don't somehow end up on his desk. In recent weeks, Kelly has reportedly limited the amounts of printouts delivered to Trump, causing him to ask aides about the whereabouts of articles from right-wing sites like Breitbart and the Daily Caller. Where's my Breitbart? Where's my Daily Caller? The president reportedly complained to a friend about the lack of articles, but the president still reportedly has not yet been cut off from at least one right-leaning news source. Kelly hasn't been able to keep Trump from constantly watching Fox News. Despite rumors of Trump's dissatisfaction with his new chief of staff and possible reading restrictions, it's like he's a kid. He's like, a, he's like my, ch- my own five-year-old kid. He's got reading restrictions. Like, you got to put parental controls on his media. <laughs> the president has been talking uh, his favorite communication outlet, to, uh, which is Fox News, to voice his support for Kelly. There have been numerous stories indicating that there is a lot of tension between Kelly and uh, Trump. And here's the problem. Kelly is doing the right thing to try to save this presidency. And with any other president, I think it might work. But there's an inherent problem. If Kelly succeeds, right, and somehow harnesses Trump by cutting off his access to the nut jobs and getting rid of the bad apples, guess what happens? the media will start reporting that Kelly saved Trump's presidency. And then guess what happens? Trump gets pissed. And then Kelly gets fired. That's almost inevitable because that's what Trump's about. So there's, there's almost no good scenario. If it works, Trump will get pissed because Kelly will get the credit. If it doesn't work, it's just going to devolve quickly and Kelly will resign or, or get fired anyway. But at least he's trying. You got to give him credit for that. Uh, Non-Trump news this week. I wanted to mention a couple of things. Boy, in the last couple of weeks, there have been several situations that really have exposed how utterly gullible the general public is. What a bunch of dupes we are. I mean, the amount of hype, the hype to dumb people ratio is extraordinary, especially in recent weeks. The eclipse, my God. Okay, I've got no problem with you being curious about the eclipse, but if you traveled to go see the eclipse or if you took off work to see the eclipse, even if you're in like the 100% range of total eclipse, that's, that's weird to me. I, I've actually experienced basically a full eclipse. I played in a golf tournament 
in Great Britain, just outside of London in 1999, the British Mid Amateur Golf Championship, which doesn't even exist anymore. And we played in the middle of what was effectively a full eclipse. It was interesting. It was, they thought they might have to delay play. They didn't. It wasn't that big of a deal. It felt like for a few minutes, like you were walking in a negative photo. That's the best way I can describe it. Is that you know, everything looked like you were in a negative. Um, but okay, fine. Yeah, that was great. Next. But the level of hype was insane. Similarly, the Mayweather McGregor fight. My God, how dumb people are. I mean, it's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, here you have an old boxer that may be the greatest of his generation, certainly at his weight class, maybe the best ever in Mayweather fighting a guy who's never boxed before who's a martial arts guy who um and it was they pretended like this was Ali Frazier 3 i mean it was it was absurd it was insane it was desperate it was not a good fight and mcgregor actually got credit cuz he didn't get knocked out or it wasn't a tko until the 10th round and i'm thinking thinking, wait a minute, McGregor uh, is facing a guy who hasn't knocked out anybody for years, hasn't fought anybody for a couple of years, basically coming out of retirement for this, and he's getting credit because he only got knocked out in the 10th round? It felt like the analysis of Trump giving the State of the Union address. Oh, my gosh, he didn't crap all over himself. It was awesome. How presidential. Way to go. Way, yay, yay, the little guy did so good. So and then that was maybe the biggest pay-per-view fight ever certainly in recent times. And if, if you enjoyed it, fantastic, but I don't get it. Although inspired by the same set of circumstances, I understand that Tiger Woods is going to come out of retirement and he's going to play golf against the UK croquet champion. That, that cuz that's basically the equivalent here. <laughs> Got an aging Retired Tiger Woods is going to come out of retirement one-on-one with the UK croquet champion. Because croquet is almost like golf. Just like martial arts are almost like boxing, except you're not allowed to use your legs and you got padded gloves and everything else is different. But anyway. And then, of course, there's the 20th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana. Oh, my gosh. how I, I must have watched a dozen television specials on this because my wife is still enamored with princess diana um because and why and i wrote a column about this which i urge you to check out you can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com or via google i do find there one interesting thing about the whole diana phenomenon and that is that millions and millions of american women psychologically got duped into thinking they attended her wedding that's really the key to the whole thing they all think that they attended her wedding because they got up in 1981 at some ridiculous hour in the morning and watched on television back when it was a big deal to get a live feed from Great Britain and where there were only four channels at the time. So the television audience was insane. Every, every channel was covering it. So that has stayed with that generation, those two generations of women, really, forever. And that's really what's driving the hype over a former princess having been killed in a car accident 20 years ago uh, this weekend. 
Two utterly insane stories that I have to mention in the realm of political correctness. Both of which sound like they're from The Onion, but both of which are actually true. ESPN this weekend did not allow an announcer to broadcast a football game between the University of Virginia and William & Mary, a game played in Charlottesville, where obviously there was that whole horrible situation from a couple weeks ago. Because, get this, his name is Robert Lee. It's just flat out ridiculous. I'm not making this up. By the way, he's Asian. Asian. So because an Asian has the name Robert Lee and, you know, allegedly the circumstance there in Charlottesville occurred because of a controversy over a statue for Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, somehow ESPN was terrified that they might trigger some special snowflake. I don't know what they think was going to happen. People were going to storm the broadcast booth. Because Robert Lee, the Asian, was broadcasting on ESPN 7 or whatever the hell the game was on. I mean, it's Virginia, William & Mary. No one was watching to begin with. I wrote a column about this absurdity, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, which I think you'll enjoy. Uh, But it it almost goes without saying just how insane that is. But the the larger point, it's, it's a significant point because this is where we're headed. And much to Trump's advantage. Liberals always overreact, and they're playing right into Trump's hands. This is exactly what Trump wants. And there's no question ESPN is a charter member of the liberal media. Because uh, the overreaction, people go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this is nuts. And if, you know, if someone named Robert Lee is not allowed to broadcast a football game at the University of Virginia, where does it stop? Well, it never does. And, and, and probably never will. Speaking of which, in the last few years, there have been several stories involving racist bananas. Now, I I love stories involving racist bananas because they're so obviously bullshit. And yet the media falls for them and liberal academia falls for them every single time. You may recall from the old syndicated Sunday night radio show, there was a story a couple years ago, which I immediately called BS on. And boy, did I call BS on this one. And I was dead right. Involving two football teams in New Jersey, where one of the teams, which wasn't even a, a, a full-on black team, uh, found a banana in their locker room. And they went bananas. Now, I knew the story was bullcrap for a number of reasons. One, I knew that the, the city in New Jersey, that this was not a, an area of rampant racism. Two, it didn't make any damn sense. Uh, three, the team that was complaining lost the game, which uh, was a short tell to me that they were looking for an excuse. And the New York media, because it was in northern New Jersey, jumped all over this. And I, I mean, my BS detector was, you know. These go to 11. It went to 11 immediately on this. And I contacted the reporter in, in the New York TV station, I contacted the news director. I said, this story is bullcrap. What are you going to do about it? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. We, we're just reporting the facts. Well, as it turned out, there was no evidence at all that racism was involved with the racist banana. Although, interestingly, in order to save face, the 
Athletic Commission provided a sternly worded uh, letter or, uh, or proclamation or, or statement to the school warning them that they have to be more sensitive about racial imagery and shouldn't be leaving bananas around the locker <laughs> so and the th- the thing about the banana of course which is is crazy uh, even more crazy than it appears is that to me if you think that a banana is inherently racist guess what you're the racist all right you are the racist because you're the one connecting a banana to i guess what apes and then apes to black people? Is that the connection? Because I don't even understand it. But if, you are, if you're the one making that connection, you are the definition of racist. So with that backdrop came this story this week. And I'll read from Mediate, the, the website for which I write a column. A collegiate Greek life retreat was cut short this week after students discovered a discarded banana peel lying atop a tree which was taken by some as an offensive act relating to race. A report by the Daily Mississippian details the events that transpired at the University of Mississippi after the initial banana drama, including, get this, a group discussion on racism during which one student came out as the fruit-tossing culprit. However, This confession was not enough to calm the disturbed hearts and minds of aggrieved students as some of these victims reportedly exited the meeting in tears, citing that they no longer felt welcome or safe. Let's review. Let's review. So there's this retreat, a fraternity retreat at the University of Mississippi. They find a banana peel in a tree, they have a meeting about this because this is an emergency, folks. Oh, my God. There's a banana in a tree in Mississippi. Someone's going to get lynched. That's, that's basically the response here. And during the meeting, this emergency meeting, someone says, um, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that was, that was me. I, I, I just didn't feel like throwing out the banana peel. I'm sorry. I... I put it in the tree. You would think in a semi-rational world, they go, oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, that's fine. Nope, not here. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was irrelevant. In fact, it was probably disbelieved. The remainder of the trip was officially canceled after this emotionally charged convening. The culprit of the traumatic incident expressed regret for his actions, telling the campus newspaper, there is no excuse. (laughs) Student Ryan Swanson's inability to find a trash can acted as the catalyst for this now national news event. Swanson said, although unintentional, there is no excuse for the pain that was caused to members of our community. (laughs) What? Yes, 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 there's an excuse. There's no pain caused. I have much to learn and look forward to doing such and encourage all members of our university community to do the same. (laughs) We must all keep in mind how our actions affect those around us differently, said the banana-tossing perpetrator to the Daily Mississippian. (laughs) 
obviously he's a white guy and he was afraid his entire life was going to be destroyed if somehow he didn't apologize profusely and honor the hurt being felt by others because he put a banana peel in a tree. Additionally, the director of fraternity and sorority life penned an entire letter to speak out in solidarity with the campus community impacted by the previously mentioned fruit discarding method, writing, quote, to be clear, many members of our community were hurt, frightened, and upset by what occurred at the retreat. Because of the underlying reality, many students of color endure on a daily basis. It's just flat out ridiculous. The conversation manifested into a larger conversation about race relations today at the University of Mississippi. This is not the first time the curved yellow fruit has stirred up racial controversy among college students as Clemson University dealt with a similar incident known as Banana Gate, which involved peels being placed in front of a predominantly black dorm. Shockingly, the infamous banana placement was not related to hate speech and instead was reported by administrators to have no racial motivation. Well, don't let the facts get in the way of a good media narrative don't let the facts get in the way of our being hurt special snowflakes we are embracing our pain because there's nothing better than being a victim in this generation that's what it is folks this is about oh my gosh i'm so hurt because i'm such a good person because i hate racism so much i hate racism so much that we're going to end a fraternity retreat because there's a banana in a tree. You can't make this up. This is going to put the onion out of business. The onion, the parody news website cannot possibly function in a world where this is happening in real life. But that's the world we're now living in folks. All right. That's our number one of the world according to Zig podcast. Make sure you listen to hours two and three on this Labor Day weekend in our number two. Tremendous interview with Jonathan Schreiber, the president of Mercury Radio Arts, the Glenn Beck Blaze business, about the layoffs that uh, they have endured this week. A tremendous hour-long interview. And in hour number three, NFL legend and my good friend Franco Harris joins us to talk about the beginning of football season in hour number three. As always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, share this podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, or word of mouth. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. 
sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.